0: So, Robin, um, I would be really interested to hear a little bit more about how you came to be interested in migration-related questions and topics.
1: Well, okay, I suppose this is really a bit of an ex-post-facto rationalisation. I'm thinking about it um, now because you're asking me about it, but at the time, of course, I blundered into it. And I think I can't escape from the fact that I was a migrant myself. I left South Africa in 1964, with the height of the apartheid regime. Um, and I was the son of two other migrants, that's to say. My father, who had come from Lithuania, and my mother, who was from Poland. And we grew up in a small um, community in South Africa. Um, And didn't see it as particularly odd that we were migrants, but in retrospect, I think we did. It did give me that sense of displacement of moving, being part of uh, one's life and part of one's identity, and to some degree the idea of displacement. Um, So I sort of lived it out biographically. In fact. As um, a scholar I didn't really start on migration studies, I was much more interested in issues of um, African nationalism and also issues of labour politics, uh, looking in particular at early organisations of black unions.
0: Uh, black so, and um, how did your, your focus on migration? more particularly then change and evolve over time
1: Well, i tell you how it came about biographically uh, I've been working for quite some time on West African issues um, in Nigeria, I'd spent two years in Nigeria during the civil war there and I was back in Birmingham and met for the first time in my life some West Indian students car- students from the Caribbean They were the sons and daughters, mainly sons at that time, of Caribbean migrants who had come in the 1950s to Britain. And they were just beginning to get a university education. They drifted into my classes and into my lectures because they were interested in Africa and there wasn't anything much taught about the Caribbean. And gradually I became familiar with these students and started to think. Well, it would really be interesting to do some kind of study which would encapsulate the movement between Africa, we had this idea of West Africa, I was in Birmingham at the time, West Midlands and West Indies. And, of course, many years later, Paul Gilroy wrote this up as the Black Atlantic. But we had that kind of conception in our minds at the time. And so that really got me going. It was really the students who triggered that thought in my mind that it would be great to do some work on migration.
0: So you're probably, well, over the time, you probably have to become known as one of the leading thinkers and theorists of, on diasporas. So could you explain us a little more about what the specificities of the subfield of diaspora is in migration then?
1: Right. Uh, well, I'll tell you um, what I suppose was the dominant norm in studied migration, at, let us say in the 1970s, wasn't a big profession. It was dominated mainly by demographers, a few sociologists, and others. But I think the paradigmatic case was what might easily be summarized as the Ellis Island migrants, that's to say, people who came from a group of countries um, to the United States over the period 1880s to 1914. The first period was when the sail ships and gave way to steam so you could carry large numbers of people. The last, of course, the outbreak of the First World War, which really stopped transatlantic migration in its tracks. But the feeling of that at that time was that people came from country A to country B and they dropped off their old identity, they assimilated to their new country and they became Americans. Now, of course, it was a bit of a myth all along, but it was the kind of dominant idea. In the 1970s and 1980s, even more visibly, it became much clearer that it wasn't happening like that, so that essentially people had complex relationships with the places from which they came and to which they went. Um, and those complex relationships were expressed by partial integration, not full integration and partial recollection and relationships with their prior countries of origin. And it was quite difficult to express that um, as a generality. So I suppose a few of us, I'm thinking of Katz Toljoian, um, of Bill Saffron, of Jim Clifford, Paul Gilroy, and others, and myself basically dusted down this old concept of diaspora, which was dated a long time ago, back to Greek, the Greek period, and then was associated later on with the dispersion of the Jews. And we wondered whether that would help in understanding these complex transnational relationships. And in fact it was quite productive, and of course a lot of people still use that term, diaspora, to try and encapsulate. We, we didn't imagine at the time um, quite how many ethnic groups or non-ethnic groups would appropriate that term. Uh, and, you know, it was always a, like a sort of a magical mystery tour. We started with 10 or 20 or 30, and now we're into the hundreds of groups that are described in, in diasporic terms.
0: So moving on from there, what is it that you're working on now?
1: Well, at the moment I'm working on creolization, which is a word that's not that familiar to many people, so perhaps it just needs a little bit of explanation. Um, Namely, it's that form of social conduct and social structure and social behavior that arises when two or more groups are forced or choose to interact the classical case probably the opening case would be when you get thick encounters that's the expression thick comes from Clifford gertz between Africans and Europeans in Cape Verde and what emerges is a new language which is not the mother tongue of either group the new language called Creole, or Creole and new forms of practices, social practices Music, carnival, new religions, new ways of getting on with each other, and I've been interested in this because it seems to me that, you know, in summary, one of the great problems of the 21st century is how do we get along with each other? And I thought it might be interesting to look at all those experiences that we've had so far, good, bad, not so. To understand very often, which give us some insight into what happens, if you like, after migration or consequent to migration as people begin to interact in complex ways, one mm. with another.
0: Mm. Well, against this very, very rich backdrop, what is it that you are teaching in the MSc Migration Studies program? Do you pick up on some of these aspects?
1: Well, I, in fact, I do give a long session on creolization and the students do look a little puzzled as I start but by the end of the day they do seem to all get it and quite enjoy it of course it's a word that um, there are near synonyms um, like um, hybridity and even multiculturalism or interculturalism and so once one translates a little bit it begins to uh, click, and quite a lot of students see, pick up on it and enjoy it. It's a slightly different angle to migration, because if you like, it focuses more on consequences of migration, and to some degree also on that rather um, difficult, almost philosophical question of the meaning of migration. So it's not so much, you know, who goes where, when, mm-hmm. and for what reason, but how does one interpret mobility interaction and so on so it's a little bit if you like cutting off that few layers of onion skin to get down to the bottom of a a rather more complex uh, heart of the problem
0: Mm. yes and now moving on to some more general terms like what do you think makes Oxford a very special place or perhaps yes well in the light of the migration studies program for example to study migration and migration related issues and questions.
1: Well look, I think Oxford is really a wonderful place to come to. I, I, I can say this with a degree of objectivity because I've taught at six other universities and I've enjoyed all those places too, but in terms of migration studies, there are only a handful of universities that are even in the same league as Oxford in migration studies and I think it's fair to say that Oxford is is ahead of the game. We have and 50 master students, perhaps 20, 25 doctoral students, perhaps even more than that. So we're talking about a great student body. And of course, so many students learn from each other. And, learn from, and we have, of course, we also have three migration centers and a great number of researchers and visitors who are working in the field. Terrific resources as well um, in the University Library. So it's somewhere where really it's rather special if you're interested in migration studies. Mm. Mm.
0: Yes. Well, now, finally, I would like to, well, perhaps turn to a more contemporary pro- problem related to migration. Well, you know, when we look at the media images that are being conveyed with regard to migrants, we often get the, the, the image of migration as something that is threatening our societies and putting them in, in, at, at risk in some certain ways. Now, in 2006, I think it was you have published a volume entitled Migration and its Enemies so how would you respond to this threatening image of migration events the, the backdrop of that piece of work
1: well I think that's uh, absolutely a correct observation so many countries or so many let's say politicians and certain social actors in those countries are against migration that we now in a sense have a rather interesting contest on the one side generally you will find economists and free marketeers and also people on the left who would like free mobility um, so you have that very strange alliance economists saying migration is good for the country um, neoliberal free marketeers saying well it's logical if you have free movements of goods and images and commodities and money why shouldn't you also have free movements of labour and of course the left are arguing in terms of the greater need for proletarians to sell their labour proletarians to sell their labour wherever they choose but against that are stacked probably the majority of um, indigenous people, I mean, the word indigenous is obviously complicated, long residents would be the easier way of putting it, who are dug in and quite often recent migrant families who say, well it's enough already, you know, they, they want to pull the ladder up having climbed that ladder behind them. But there's a sense in which at a cultural level, at a social level, at a political level in terms of access to housing, education and so on, um, people are reluctant to admit newcomers in the same way as they once were let's say hundred or one hundred and fifty years ago. Now of course quite often these hostilities are based on myths. Um, migrants are supposed to be the font of all evil. They commit crime. They supposedly uh, take people's housing or take people's sexual partners away from them. M- most of they or claim too much on welfare. Most of these on closer examination turn out to be untrue. But they widely believed, and of course uh, we follow the old uh, Thomas dictum or theorem, what's real in the mind is real in the consequences. So I think um, this is a very, very powerful, if you like, antagonism between people who want migration to flow and people who want it to stop. And it's one of the big complex uh, questions of the 21st century.
0: Thank you very much, Robin.
1: Okay, great pleasure.